Dear Father, we thank you for your word. And uh, we come to it tonight, hopefully with hearts open and our wills submitted to you. And if they're not, um, Lord, please let your spirit do that in us, to give us a heart ready to submit. I pray that you would encourage us tonight as we get to hear about you and your nearness to us. Um, we get to read about um, the same God who's active tonight, being active all these years ago um, throughout world history. Open our eyes to you. Let us love you and your word more from tonight. I ask you that in the name of Jesus. Amen. All right. So Genesis 28, last week we were in 25 and 27. We touched on 26 there a little bit at the end. We got to learn about Isaac's two sons. So you have Abraham, the first one called in Genesis 12, and then his son Isaac. And then Isaac has these two boys, uh, Jacob the schemer and Esau the idiot. And we talked about this idea that if you're a first-time reader, that this story would throw you for a little bit of a loop because this is supposed to be the chosen family to, that, that God wants to use to bless the entire world. And just a couple generations in, we're stuck with these guys. And we don't know exactly which direction it's going, but you know it, it, it's not going to go to a good direction. It's either going to go to an idiot in Esau, God's going to use him and bring the family line through him to bless the world, or it's going to go through a, name, a guy whose name is Jacob, that is like heel grabber or deceiver, and he lives up to his name. And, and so we talked about how crazy this would have looked to a first-time reader, but how God, in His sovereignty and goodness, is ready and able and willing to use even those who are the least qualified for His purposes. And, and He is not stopped or stifled by um, human beings and their weakness and their frailty. Uh, tonight, we will see uh, the beginning of this process um, where he begins to take one of these young men uh, and use him and, and, and move him towards this path of being a blessing to the world. If you remember, as we close that, because Jacob has stolen both Esau's birthright and the blessing of the firstborn that Esau was supposed to have, Esau is ready to kill him. And he's making threats and, and he's whispering around to the household servants, hey, my dad's not going to be around forever. And when he's gone, I'll see to it that Jacob gets his. And, and Rebecca, their mom, catches wind of this. And so she chooses, she says, we got to get Jacob out of here so he doesn't get killed. So she goes to Isaac and says, listen, we need a good wife for Jacob. Esau married these two Canaanite women, these women of the land. They are not from our people, from our family. And, and they're driving me crazy. I, I cannot live if both of our sons marry someone like that. And so please... Send Jacob away up to where our family is, where uh, my family is, and actually it would have been Isaac's family too, up in the area, in the area of Haran, which is up here. It's actually probably further up, so I just gave you an arrow. Picture like here. This is about where they are. Um, send, send him up there to get a wife, to bring back a wife from our tribe, from our family. And so Isaac sends him away. That's where we left off. And now we are in chapter 28. I'm going to just kind of summarize the first nine verses and then get you into stuff. Isaac pulls Jacob into his tent and then tells him, this is what I want. I want you to go back to Haran. Go back and find uh, your mother's family. Laban is her, is, is her brother's name. And I want you to go find Laban and his family. Marry a daughter from his family. Uh, find someone there. And so he actually, in that process, also gives the blessing, kind of he seems to, even though he doesn't necessarily have the authority, but he says, um, may Yahweh bless you and keep you, and may he multiply you across the earth, and may He you inherit the blessing that he wants to give to you. And so he sends him out with that blessing, and Jacob begins to make his way along this ridge here. So let's go to chapter 28, starting in verse 10. says this, Jacob left Beersheba and went toward Haran. And he came to a certain place and stayed there that night because the sun had set. Taking one of the stones of the place, he put it under his head and lay down in that place to sleep. And he dreamed, and behold, there was a ladder set up on the earth, and the top of it reached to heaven. And behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. So, Jacob begins on this journey. Now, Beersheba sits at the very bottom of the promised land. 
sometimes you'll see in the Bible it'll talk about something taking place in Israel from Dan to Beersheba. And Dan sits up at the top, and the city of Dan, and then Beersheba sits at the bottom. So this, it's, this is like the very edge of it. And that's their way of saying all Israel because you got from the top to the bottom. Beersheba sits at the bottom, and this is where they're dwelling right now. There would have been this kind of ridge of like hills and mountains that kind of runs up through the middle and a highway that ran along it, a highway, if you will, kind of a major path that gets journeyed through. And so this is the plan, that, or this is the journey that he would have taken. From Beersheba to Haran is 550 miles. So this would have taken over a month for Jacob to make this journey. It's a long trek to go there. And he would have traveled all the way up there through Hebron, through what would later be known as Jerusalem, was probably still known as Salem at this time, or Jebus, and then uh, Bethel. Actually, it's not named that yet, but it's about to be. And then Shechem, and then he would have cut around over to Damascus. This is the same Damascus. If you go to Sunnybrook that we were talking about in the last couple of weeks, Saul of Tarsus later was headed to Damascus. And then on the way up around this kind of edge, up into Haran. I'm not going to write on our wall up there, but um, that would have been the direction he goes. So he is separated from his family and everything he's ever known at this point. He is traveling alone to a foreign land. Yes, there's family up there, but nobody has seen that family um, for years and years and years, even knowing if they're, if they're still there, if they still exist, if they haven't left or those things. So he's headed up there to find family that he hopes is there. He has next to nothing on him. He's just been given this blessing from Isaac, and he was also given the birthright. And he was given, um, you know, the blessing for, uh, of Esau. But none of that is his right now because A, his father hasn't died. And B, they don't have like liquid assets, like a lot of money I'll give you. When, when you get the inheritance, you get the land that we live on and the tents that we have and the livestock that we have. So Jacob's got like next to nothing to his name. And he's making this long trek by himself. It must have been a time of incredible uncertainty for him, wondering... Um, what he's gotten himself into. He can't go home because his brother wants to kill him. He's left to only go forward to a mysterious land and hope that things will work out. And then at Bethel, it says he has this crazy dream right here. And the dream is, this is one of the more famous stories in Scripture. You may have heard the title or the name, even if you've never heard the story, Jacob's Ladder is what it's called. And and uh, lots of people have used that name to throw around for different things. Something about it kind of fascinates it. There's a lot, or fascinates us. There's a lot of art, a lot of paintings of Jacob's ladder with these angels ascending and descending on this ladder where he's at. More than likely, actually, it's not a ladder. Uh, the same word could be used for like staircase. And, and that's probably what, uh, what he has seen. It was believed that there are, that there were different places on the earth that acted as kind of like gateways or, or portals, if you will, whatever you want to say, between the two realms, between the, the realms of the gods and the realm of men, and some people also the realm of the netherworld. Um, so it was believed that there were these gateways, these sacred locations where they could like come across those things. And, and so actually that's what we talked a long time ago about the Tower of Babel and how it was more than likely like a ziggurat which is one of those kind of spirally staircase buildings going up into the sky. That's, that's what those things were, were. They were designed to build stairways up where the gateway was so that the messengers of God could come down those stairs or that the gods themselves could come down to be worshipped in the temples there. That's what they were made there for. And so when Jacob's dreaming, he's not, he's not seen like an extension ladder okay, up to heaven, he's, he's seen a ziggurat, more than likely. He's seen a tower of Babel, perhaps, uh, this, this spirally thing going up into the heaven. And he's not seen, like most of the art depicts, like this parade of angels kind of going up and down this ladder for fun or something like that, right? Um, this is the gateway where the messengers of the gods come down to go out into the earth. And, and deliver their messages and then come back up. And so he's seen angels going out on task and then coming back up and those kinds of things. That's what he's seen as he goes through this. Um, verse 13 says this, And behold, you'll notice that, that's there a lot, behold and see. It's, it's like this, open, he opened his eyes, he saw, um, and 
behold, Yahweh, or the Lord, stood above it and said, I am the Lord, the God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie I will give to you and to your offspring. Your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth, and you shall spread abroad to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south, and in you and your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Behold, I am with you. I will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land for I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised. So not only is he seeing these messengers, these angels going up and down this thing, he also sees Yahweh, this God that, that Jacob, more than likely from what we know, doesn't worship. He's heard about from his grandfather Abraham, but he's never experienced him himself, more than likely. He's probably heard about from Isaac, but but we don't know if he's experienced him himself. And this is his first, like, theophany, a vision of it. Now, the ESV, if you've got it, says that he saw Yahweh standing above it, but it's also got a footnote next to it um, with an alternative translation of this word, which is, which is what? Can you know I got it? He's standing next to it. He's standing beside it. And, and actually, almost everywhere where this word, it's actually a preposition and a verb, almost everywhere in the Old Testament where you see this, it is not translated above it, it's translated beside it. And, and that's actually kind of significant, because the God that Jacob has seen is not like all the other gods of the Old Testament that need the stairway to make their way down between realms. He's not like the gods who are either above at the top or down at the bottom. He's a God who's beside. He's a God who doesn't need gateways to get from realm to realm. He's already in all of it. He's already, he stands beside the gateway to those things. He is um, beyond that, greater than the stairways, greater than the gateway, and that is significant. He doesn't need a portal. And now this Yahweh gives the same promise to Jacob that he was given to Abraham and Isaac. Kind of interesting, actually. Um, around this same time in Abraham's life is when God shows up to Abraham and gives him a theophany and tells him to go from Haran down into the promised land. Well, it happens for Jacob when Jacob is going from the promised land up into Haran. Uh, at, at roughly the same period in their life, it would appear. Um, and so he gives him this promise. And in verse, and, and verse 15, that promise there is one uh, that basically confirms what we talked about last week. Yes, Jacob's a screw-up. Yes, he's, he's not a good man, but God is going to see his promise through. I will take you to Haran and back. I will see you through to the end, and I will not leave you until I have fulfilled my promises to you. Verse 16 says this, Then Jacob awoke from his sleep and said, Surely Yahweh is in this place, and I did not know it. And he was afraid and said, How awesome is this place? This is none other than the house of God. This is the gate of heaven. So early in the morning, Jacob took the stone that he had put under his head, and he set it up for a pillar and poured oil on top of it. He called the name of that place Bethel, but the name of the city was Luz at the first. Then Jacob made a vow, saying, If God will be with me, and will keep me in this way that I go, and will give me bread to eat and clothing to wear, so that I come again to my father's house in peace. Then Yahweh shall be my God. And this stone which I have set up for a pillar shall be God's house. And of all that you give me, I will give a full tenth to you. So he wakes up and goes, whoa, this, there's something special about this place. This is bigger than I thought. This is the very house of God. Its name is Luz, but he changes the name there to Bethel. Beth means house. And El is the kind of generic word for God. House of God is literally what the name means as he calls it that. And so he sets up the stone probably with some others, this column. And we've discovered a number of these in this part of the world from this time. These columns kind of set up and then marked with some sort of liquid poured over it like oil as a marker that this is a sacred space. And so Jacob makes it kind of a formal place. This is a place, and he'll come back to this place because it is marked to him as a special spot. This is a key moment in Jacob's story, even if it's not like fully on there. Notice kind of what he says. If this God that just showed up to me chooses to bless me, if he really does what he says he's going to do, then he's going to be my God. Um, and and at, this, at this point, Jacob is, is probably kind of like everyone else, um, like 
polytheistic, and he's got a number of gods that, that, that are on the table and, and that he's kind of looked to. But he says, if, if this Yahweh really does follow up on his word, I'm choosing him. I'll go with him. Um, but it's, it's kind of a wait and see. It, it still sounds kind of like the bargaining Jacob that we've known so far, the one who's always able to kind of work deals out for himself. Um, side note, I'm pretty sure verse 16 is a statement that I could have made many times in my life, and I'm guessing that you could have as well. Surely the Lord is in this place, and I did not know it. Scott's going to tease that idea out for us more in just a bit, but we've got more of the story to cover here. Go to chapter 29, starting in verse 1. Then Jacob went on his journey uh, uh, and came to the land of the people of the east. As he looked, he saw a well in the field, and behold, three flocks of sheep lying beside it. For out of that well the flocks were watered. The stone on the well's mouth was large, and when all the flocks were gathered there, the shepherds would roll the stone from the mouth of the well and water the sheep and put the stone back in its place over the mouth of the well. So one day he's traveling along. He doesn't know probably exactly where he is, but he does come upon this well out in kind of the wilderness, and it's surrounded by all these flocks and shepherds. Now, in a land where water is everything, Right? We talked about this last week. There's no running water. You don't just go to your faucet. If you find water, you need it. And in a land where it's probably scarce and where people are needing it for their agriculture and for their livestock and all those things, wells become very important things. And, and they, they, you can tell this is kind of like a community well with a community contract. Because the idea is they go to this place and there's a large stone over it. Perhaps more than one man is supposed to be able to move. And, and, and the idea is nobody's able to start using this until we're all here to use it, until all the flocks are here, to make sure that nobody's cheating people and getting more water than they should or nobody's contaminating the well or whatever. And so all these flocks are sitting there waiting around it. Uh, verse 4, Jacob said to them, My brothers, where do you come from? And they said, We are from Haran. And so now he, he realizes, Oh, I'm close. Uh, I'm almost to the end of my journey. He said to them, Do you know Laban, the son of Nahor? And they said, We know him. He said to them, Is it well with him? And they said, It is well. And see, Rachel his daughter is coming with the sheep. He said, Behold, it is still high day. It is not time for the livestock to be gathered together. Water the sheep and go pasture them. But they said, and here's the deal or the agreement we just mentioned, we cannot until all the flocks are gathered together and the stone is rolled from the mouth of the well. Then we water the sheep. While he was still speaking with them, Rachel came with her father's sheep, for she was a shepherdess. Now as soon as Jacob saw Rachel the daughter of Laban, his mother's brother, and the sheep of Laban, his mother's brother, Jacob came near and rolled the stone from the well's mouth and watered the flock of Laban, his mother's brother. Then Jacob kissed Rachel and wept aloud, and Jacob told Rachel that he was her father's kinsman, and that he was Rebekah's son, and she ran and told her father. Um, So it turns out that the flock they're waiting for to water the sheep just so happens to be the flock of Laban, the very man that Jacob is looking for, and Rachel is on her way. Can you imagine the joy of this moment? that he's traveled over a month in a strange land, not fully sure where he is, not sure when he gets there how he's going to be able to find his family, not sure if they're still there, if they're well. And all of a sudden he stumbles upon this well and it just so happens to be the one that Laban's flock is taken to. And so he is overwhelmed with this. He rolls the stone away from the thing. We don't know. We don't know. Maybe it wasn't that big, but, but the idea seems to imply that this is big enough that it takes like more than one shepherd to do. And Jacob rolls it away himself, perhaps supernaturally, rolls it away and then begins to water all the sheep for Rachel. And when he's done that, he says he weeps aloud and he kisses her. This isn't a romantic term. You, you kiss on the cheek family members back then. Whether you've ever met that family member or not, if we're family, we're family. And so this is a greeting that you would kiss them on both cheeks. And this is what Jacob does to her when he sees her there. Verses 13 and 14 say this, And as soon as Laban heard the news about Jacob, his sister's son, he ran to meet him and embraced him and kissed him and brought him to his house. Jacob told Laban all these things, and Laban said to him, Surely you are my bone and my flesh. And he stayed with him a month. Now, Laban's statement there is meant to be a warm one. You 
are my bone and my flesh. You are my flesh and blood. We are, we are of the same people. We are cut from the same cloth. But, but the reader who's been paying attention to this story um, might have kind of their eyes kind of perked up a little bit. Like That might not be the best thing for Jacob to be encountering a man who is cut from the same cloth as him. If you know anything about Jacob and you know what people like Jacob do, that might be a warning to you of the things that are coming. So this actually will set up a very bizarre story, or a, yeah, pretty bizarre story, that will create these little subplots that actually drive almost the entire rest of the book of Genesis, are going to flow out of this encounter between Jacob and Laban and what happens, what Laban kind of pulls on him in this. So verse 15 Then Laban said to Jacob, Because you are my kinsman, should you therefore serve me for nothing? Tell me, what shall your wages be? Now Laban had two daughters. The name of the older was Leah, and the name of the younger was Rachel. Leah's eyes were weak, but Rachel was beautiful in form and appearance. Jacob loved Rachel, and he said, I will serve you seven years for your younger daughter Rachel. And Laban said, It is better that I give her to you than that I should give her to any other man. Stay with me. So Jacob served seven years for Rachel, and they seemed to him but a few days because of the love that he had for her. So he says, Laban's got these two daughters. Leah, the older, says she has weak eyes. That, that word, actually, that term, is, a, is kind of a generic enough, it's hard to translate. It's, it's often actually used in positive tones, like um, tender or, or uh, soft eyes, lovely, something, it could be like lovely, something like that. So it might not be saying, some people think weak as in maybe she was kind of like blind or something. It could just be saying like Leah had like lovely eyes, but Rachel was lovely in form and appearance. She was lovely, like, like every part of her was lovely, whereas Leah just had these lovely eyes and Rachel is in love with, or sorry, Jacob loves Rachel. And so he says, listen, I will work for seven years for your daughter, which, uh, which is basically at that point you, play, you paid kind of a, a dowry, a bride price um, for to marry someone. It wasn't meant to be like selling a daughter off. The idea of this practice of paying to marry a young daughter um, was to do a couple things. One, it was to kind of solidify the relationship. It made it far less likely that a groom would end up leaving that that daughter or divorce her, divorcing her. After all, our family's invested in this. My family paid a sum for me to be married into it. And it also created actually kind of a, a, an emergency fund, if you will, if that, if that groom was to die early in life or if he was to abandon her and leave her, she now becomes the responsibility of her father and mother again until the day she dies. And so that money there is, is then uh, a possibility they're used to, to be able to provide for her. Um, so he wants, to, he wants to work seven years for her. Uh, Laban says, fine, that's great. Go ahead and do it. And so he works seven years over that time. Verse 21 says, Then Jacob said to Laban, Give me my wife that I might go into her, for my time is completed. So Laban gathered together all the people of the place and made a feast. But in the evening he took his daughter Leah and brought her to Jacob. And he went into her, and Laban gave his female servant Zilpah to his daughter Leah to be her servant. And in the morning, behold, it was Leah. And Jacob said to Laban, What is this you have done to me? Did I not serve with you for Rachel? Why then have you deceived me? Laban said, It is not so done in our country to give the younger before the firstborn. Complete the week of this one. That is like finish out the wedding process with Leah. Um, and we will give you the other also in return for serving me another seven years. And Jacob did so and completed her week. And then Laban gave him his daughter Rachel to be his wife. Laban gave his female servant Bilhah to his daughter Rachel to be her servant. So Jacob went into Rachel also, and he loved Rachel more than Leah, and served Laban for another seven years. So the wedding takes place. It's been seven years, and they finally have the wedding. This is the, the day that Jacob has been waiting for. For seven years, he's been working for this. And, and the way that the weddings would work, it would be a community-wide affair where they bring everybody in, and it's like a, a long, week-long celebration with that first day being a, a big celebration, a big feast, a big party, and it culminates in the end with the escorting of the bride and groom to the honeymoon suite, the honeymoon tent, um, and, and they consummate the marriage. 
damage there. Now, it would not have been uncommon with all the drinking that takes place there for like drunkenness to occur. It never indicates here in the text that Jacob is drunk. Um, but there's a possibility. It's also, again, with no artificial light, it's really dark. For those of you going, how in the world does this happen? Okay. Um, there's, a there's a possibility that booze is involved. Okay. Um, also, it's, it, it is completely dark. And the woman would have been veiled. Um, through the wedding festival until, and not like, you know, the, the like modern veils that are just kind of like a, a tissue paper over your face, right? It's like an actual veil so you can't see the face. All you, all you would be able to see in the dark is those pretty eyes. Um, and, so, and, and so this is how that might happen, as crazy as it seems, until the morning. And it literally is just like, I think literally it's something like, and Jacob woke up in the morning and behold, there was Leah. Um, and, and so he's, he gets kind of the shock of his life, runs to Laban and goes, how could you do this to me? Um, and so basically what, what gets kind of the irony of this text is that Jacob gets Jacobed here. The deceiver is deceived in this very moment. The very same thing he just did, um, uh, like a couple chapters earlier in pretending to be his sibling to get the blessing, that exact same stunt is pulled on him in the very next chapter. Um, and I also, verse 26 is kind of interesting, where it says, it is not so done in our country to give the younger before the firstborn. More literally, that says, it is not so done to put the younger before the firstborn. We don't know if that's a subtle dig on Laban's part at Jacob, who was the younger, setting himself before the firstborn, or whether that's just a subtle dig of the author at Jacob. Of, of Moses at Jacob saying um, that's not how things work and he chose to kind of usurp stuff and so now it's coming back to haunt him um, but first verse 30 is where the tension comes in and the tension that will ripple out through the rest of the book of Genesis that Jacob loved Rachel more than Leah um, and 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 he doesn't wait another seven years to get Rachel. He, he works for another seven years but he marries Rachel like as soon as the honeymoon is over with Leah which means like Leah is immediately put in this marriage, like immediately she is already kind of pushed away to the side. And, and, and the woman that Jacob really wanted is given to him. And so this creates a very painful thing for her. Verse 30, um, starting verse 30, or sorry, 31, yeah. When Yahweh saw that Leah was hated, not, not hated, but loved less is what it means, he opened her womb. But Rachel was barren, and Leah conceived and bore a son, and she called his name Reuben. For she said, Because the Lord has looked upon my affliction, for now my husband will love me. And she conceived again and bore a son and said, Because the Lord has heard that I am hated, and he has given me this son also. And so she called his name Simeon, which means heard, I believe. Again she conceived and bore a son and said, Now this time my husband will be attached to me because I have borne him three sons, and therefore his name will be called Levi, which sounds like attached. And she conceived again and bore a son and said, This time I will praise Yahweh. And therefore she called his name Judah. And then she ceased bearing. Now childbearing was a matter of great importance and, and not just importance, but honor, and, and therefore also a matter of shame for women back in that, in that day. It was crucial for an heir to be kind of passed on, for, for the lineage to continue on, to be able to give birth to kids and especially to sons back then in, in that culture. And, and so this idea that Leah is able to conceive and bear children and that Rachel is not um, becomes very, very difficult for both. And, and it's almost heartbreaking to read the list of the names that, that Leah gives to her sons and why she gives them because she's desperate for the love of her husband. She keeps hoping and thinking that this one, this time maybe, he's going to love me. Um, but it does not work in that way. Uh, let me read verses 1 through 8 and then we'll kind of sum up some of the rest of this here. It says, When Rachel saw that she bore Jacob no children, she envied her sister. She said to Jacob, Give me children or I shall die. And Jacob's anger was kindled against Rachel, and he said, Am I in the place of God who has withheld from you the fruit of the womb? And then she said, Here is my servant, Bilhah. Go into her so that she may give birth on my behalf, that even I may have children through her. 
So she gave him her servant Bilhah as a wife, and Jacob went into her, and Bilhah conceived and bore Jacob a son. Then Rachel said, God has judged me, and has also heard my voice, and given me a son. And therefore she called his name Dan. And Rachel's servant Bilhah conceived again and bore Jacob a second son. Then Rachel said, With mighty wrestlings I have wrestled with my sister and have prevailed. So she called his name Naphtali or Naphtali. Um, So this pattern of conflict and jealousy and competition becomes the norm for this family. The same thing that played out in Jacob and Esau plays out now in Jacob's wives and then it will play out in his sons for that same thing. And Rachel, when she finds she's having no kids, she actually does the same thing that Sarah did, which is give her maidservant to Abraham. And this was... Uh, this was a practice sometimes, basically like surrogate motherhood. So I give my maid servant to them, and, and then her kids are my kids, at least kind of officially, even if like there's not you know, the same level of connection or love, but they, they count as my kids. And so, and so she gives her servant Bilhah to, uh, to Jacob so that she can conceive and have those. Now, people, uh, people who, who aren't big fans of the Bible like to use texts like this to take shots at it. And, and they'll say things like, okay, how, how ironic that you know, the Bible um, is against gay marriage, but it allows stuff like this. You've got things like the forefathers like Jacob sleeping with multiple women and having like maidservants conceive and their children belong to their masters and, and how crazy like this. But it's really important to note here and to, and to make sure we're aware. Um, nowhere in this text does the author condone this. Nowhere in there does this say that this is right. In fact, I mean, the picture that's painted is of the destruction that things like this cause. And so when people like to say, um, well, how can the Bible has all these like awful things and this terrible patriarchal system with these men who are dominating all these? No, listen, recognize the difference between prescriptive and descriptive texts. Um, Describing that something happened is not the same thing as saying that it should have happened. It's just saying it happened, and it's unfortunate, and it causes a lot of problems here, but they go back and forth. So what takes place, actually, if you read through the rest of the chapter, is Leah has her four sons, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah, and then Rachel, because she wants to have children, she gives her servant Bilhah, and he has, uh, she has the next couple, Dan and Naphtali, and then Leah's not conceiving anymore and having any more kids and so she gets in on this and she gives her servant Zilpah to Jacob Um, and so Zilpah gives birth to a couple sons Gad and Asher and then all of a sudden Leah's womb is kind of opened up again I don't know how it works but she's able to conceive and she gives birth to Issachar, Zebulun and from what we know the only daughter Jacob has Dinah Um, it it could be that there were others but she ends up kind of playing a role in a future story and so um, her name gets mentioned there and then finally at the very end of this chapter Rachel or at the end of this story at least Rachel conceives and gives birth to Joseph later she'll give birth to one more son Benjamin Uh, but Joseph as you'll see obviously becomes kind of the favorite because of uh, because Rachel is his favorite And these sons here on the board will eventually become the 12 tribes of Israel. Um, From their descendants are each of these tribes. It gets a little uh, complicated. Joseph is divided into two tribes based on his two sons. Um, But the conflict that started with the mothers is going to play out amongst the sons because Joseph is favored just as Rachel is. And it's also kind of interesting to note from here. Um, Most of you probably know. I don't know maybe you do. Uh, from which of these sons does the Messiah come? Judah, right? Um, and, this is, and this is kind of interesting. Uh, because, like we keep talking about, the idea of the family line, the great, the great honor, the important ones, are always the firstborn. That's, that's kind of what's expected. And yet what you have is not the firstborn who will bring the promised blessing that God has been promising through this family. It's not the firstborn, it's the fourthborn. And to which wife is he born? It's the fourthborn of the least favorite. And, and you will notice this pattern all throughout Scripture, that God is in the business of using those who are least likely 
of using those who are unexpected to fulfill his purposes and taking, taking not the firstborn and taking not the one who is favored, not the one that, that, that people want to be, but he uses the, the one who's heartbroken because she's always second best, because she's always, um, literally, this is a weird concept, to be the third wheel in your own marriage. Um, but God takes her and takes her fourthborn son, and it's through him that he'll use the Messiah. Um, just fascinating to watch that. And, and we're not done seeing that pattern play out in, in the rest of the Old Testament as it goes on. But for now, let's take a break, and then Scott will get us, uh, we'll get up here, and, and we'll take a look back at some of the truths from Genesis 28. Tonight, I want to spend just a few moments talking about the presence of God. Um, how is it that God can be everywhere and also present with us? It's kind of a crazy thing. Um, the Bible talks about Him being all places. He is omnipresent. And yet, um, as Jacob experienced, He was right there with Him, present with Him. And he asked that question, like, is it possible that I was with the Lord and didn't know it? And, and I wonder how many of you have experienced this, have experienced the presence of God, well, have, have come to realize that the presence of God was there, and you didn't know it, and, and you missed it, you missed Him. And so eventually I want to get to a place where we can kind of talk about um, some ways that you can notice the presence of God, some ways that you can um, recognize Him. I mean, I want to introduce you to a couple figures from church history that have really explored this. But before we do that, I want to talk about, I want to walk through the Bible, and I want you to see the, the progressive nature in which God's presence happens in, throughout Scripture. And so, starting off, um, we'll, we'll start with the garden. Uh, so in the garden, God is walking with them in the cool of the night, right? In the cool of the day. I can't remember if it's day or night. Um, but He's walking with them. And it's right before Adam and Eve uh, choose to disobey God. God had made their, His relationship with them very clear, um, what He expected of them and how to stay in relationship with Him. And they chose to follow their own path and they started a pattern that has been happening in all of us ever since. This pattern of what here's what God gives us, and we take what God gives us, and we do what we want with it. And so they are removed from His, His presence. And the next time we see God kind of intervening, God revealing, God coming down, is with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob in, in visions and dreams. And so God appears to Abraham, and he makes these promises, and he appears to Jacob as well here in this text. It's, a, it's a, an amazing text that, that really shows that God is on the move here. You know, we've talked about that there was potentially from, from Adam to, to Abraham about 4,000 years of history, and it, it flew by in 11 chapters of Genesis, and all of a sudden, God slows down the story, and God Helps is helping us see that he is very, uh, very active in this story. He has a very clear purpose in which he's heading. But, but still, at this point, God's just showing up in visions and dreams and making promises to, to these men and guiding and directing them. The next major kind of element I want to point out is the Spirit. Um, several years ago, I, I kind of did a, just a study and just to walk through every time the Holy Spirit was mentioned in the Old Testament, to find out, like, wh what is he doing? What is, how is he acting? And, and what I noticed was that the Spirit is most, most, all the, most of the time is coming upon to empower. And so he's empowering people like judges and prophets and craftsmen and civic rulers like, like Moses or like King David. And so... Every time the, the Holy Spirit comes upon, it's usually for there's a task involved, um, a specific reason or a task, and it's usually determined by how, how long the Spirit is upon this person. Um, it is selective. It's certain people were given the Spirit, not others. There's this great story in Numbers 11. I don't know if you've read Numbers 11 in a while, but it's a really 
interesting story. Probably not. Um, it's a really interesting story. You should go read it. Because it, it's describing Moses has all these people. They're out in the wilderness. And he's trying to lead and guide. And they're all coming to him. They're complaining about different things. And he's like, I, God, this is overwhelming. This is too much. I, I need help. So God says, okay, I want you to pick out 70, 70 leaders, 70 elders from among the people who are already leading and guiding. And I'm going to give you, I'm going to give them um, some of the spirit that I've given you. Okay? So bring, bring your 70 leaders to me. And so he, God, or Moses brings them. And, and um, God says, God gives them some of Moses' spirit. So the spirit that, that uh, he had given Moses. And all of a sudden they start prophesying. And then, and then we realize Moses didn't do a, didn't do a head count. There's only actually 68 that were there. And two of the guys that were supposed to be there were back in the camp. And unbeknownst to Moses, these two guys back in the camp received the Spirit too and were prophesying. And so some dude sees these guys prophesying, knows that they're not supposed to be where they're supposed to be. So he runs to Moses and says, Hey, hey, there's two guys back in the camp. They're, they're prophesying. They have the Spirit. So what do you want me to do about it? And Moses is like, Are you jealous for me? Like, he says, I wish that the Lord would pour out His Spirit on all people, is what he says. And I think that's just a, way back in Numbers 11, just a hint at, what, at what, where God is, is going with this. So, you see, you see the Spirit um, coming upon, and, and uh, it was not universal, it was not permanent. And kind of the next major move of God's presence is, it was around the same time as Moses, introduced in the tabernacle. So the tabernacle would have been like this first, this first real place of, of God's dwelling since the time of the garden. And, and so God, God gives clear direction about where He will dwell in, in this holy, in the center here. And, and His presence was known by uh, smoke during the day and fire at night. And in fact, the way the camp was designed was the temple was right in the center, and he had very specific um, directions. He wanted, he wanted this tribe here, and this tribe here, and this tribe here, and all around. So if you look at an aerial view of where, how the people camped in the desert, there would be the temple right in the middle, and you'd, you'd have the tribes spread all around so that every single tribe could step out of their tent and look at the temple and see the presence of God. But, it was always with this like, He's here, and I know He's here. And, and in fact, whenever the, the cloud or the fire would move, they, oh, it's time, time to move. Pick up the temple, you know. And we got to follow, we got to follow God's Spirit, because He's leading us. And then, you fast forward about 300 years to David's son Solomon, and God had ordained Solomon to build this permanent structure, the temple. And so he builds a temple, and when they finish the temple, and they consecrate the temple, and they dedicate the temple to the Lord, this pillar of fire comes down, and it is an awesome sight. And so, so the people of God could always look and see the presence of God, but He was always distant. He was always behind a curtain. Only one person could go into the presence of God once a year if they did all the right cleansing rituals. And if not, God would take them out. So, so it was a very, it was, he was present, but he was distant. And then during also this time of the temple, you have um, kings and, and prophets and kings that are bad and leading split the kingdom and um, most, most of the kings chasing after idols, chasing after these things, lying, deceiving, um, forgetting God's covenant with their, their people. And so God inspires these these prophets, these messengers to be God's voice to them, to remind them of the covenant that he, that he has with them and to call them to repentance. And it's during this time that at some point um, the presence of God is not seen in the temple and the Ark of the Covenant is gone. And, 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 and Israel's disobedience has caught up to them. God had been patient for hundreds of years and all of a sudden His presence is gone. And it's in this time that um, several of the prophets, Ezekiel, Jeremiah, 
um, Joel or all kind of prophesy about a time when God's, God will pour out His Spirit on all flesh. You, in fact, you can read it. Ezekiel 36, you can read it. Um, and Jeremiah 31 talks about it. Says that um, He says there will be a day when, when God will be with His people and no longer shall each one teach his neighbor, um, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall know Him. And it says, They shall know me from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord, for, for I will forgive their iniquity and remember their sins no more. He says, I will write the law on their hearts. So no longer will they have to have a, a law that they have to try to live by. It will be written on their hearts. So he's, he's talking about this new covenant. They, they, they prophesy about this, this day coming. And then, there's, and then there's about 400 years of silence from Malachi to Matthew where God doesn't reveal Himself. The, the presence has gone out of the temple. They rebuild the temple and it's not the same. In fact, there's, there's some old people there. The, the temple had been destroyed for about 70 years. And there were some old people that were there when it was, the second one was built. And it, was just, it just paled in comparison because they remember the old one. And as the, as the, when the new one's built, all the people who weren't alive way back when are all cheering like, yeah, we have our temple again. And all the old people are crying and weeping because they know what the old one looked like. They know what the presence of God was like. And this one didn't have it. So, the presence of God was silent for hundreds of years. And then, and then the next one, the next major move is obviously Jesus Himself. And He comes as Emmanuel, God with us. And in John 1.14, the verse should be on the screen, it says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And, and it says, And we have seen His glory, glory as, as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. So Jesus comes, God in the flesh, dwelling among them. So notice, the Spirit came upon them. Jesus is God with them, with us. Um, Hebrews 1.3 says, He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature. So this is God in the flesh, walking around. But yet, Jesus knew that it was better for Him to leave than... Than, uh, and for the Spirit to come than it was for Him to stay. In fact, He said it in John 16, 7. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, that it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the Helper will not come to you. But if I go away, I will send Him to you. And so that's what Jesus does. Jesus comes, He fulfills um, what He's supposed to do. He, he lives a perfect life. He dies a perfect death in our place for our sins. He conquers sin and death by dying in our place and raising back to life. And so he sits at the right hand of God and he sends his spirit. In Acts 2, the Holy Spirit comes on, in, at Pentecost and now the, now the spirit is dwelling in believers. He is, he is living in them. He, is, he, he was coming upon it was God with, and now it's God in. And so, now think about this. So, so you have, before you had Jesus walking around doing ministry. And now, like we've been learning in the book of Acts, and, and I'm thankful for Mac and for, for, for Ryan and for Jim for helping me see this, but you should, in the book of Acts, you should be able to place, replace the, anytime the apostles do anything or anytime the church does anything, you should be able to replace that with the name of Jesus. Because in Acts 1, it talks about that, that Acts is simply just a continuation of the ministry of Jesus in the church. But now, his believers have his spirit wherever they go. Right? Being the, the literal hands and feet of Jesus wherever they go. It's a crazy time. In fact, you and I are living in, I would say, the glory days of God's presence here on earth. It, it talks about that in, in the Old Testament, that they longed for the day when the presence of God, when the Holy Spirit was, was living in us. Like Moses said, I, I wish that the Lord would pour out His Spirit on everybody. We're living in that day right now, which is amazing. 
So in Acts 2.38, um, it says, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our, our God calls to Himself. So, the Spirit in us. And then, the last phase, which is Revelation 21, verses 3 and 4, God dwelling with His people. And it says, And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with men, and He will dwell with them, and they will be His people, and God Himself will be, there, will be with them as their God. And listen to what He will do. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. So that is where things are heading. That is where the presence of God is coming. And you see throughout Scripture there, there is this, this progressive nature of it. But um, His presence was never meant to be examined from a distance. His presence was never meant to be kind of thrown up on a board and say, oh, wow, so He did that and then He did that. Okay, cool. No. Um, his presence was was meant to be experienced and um, up close, first through Jesus and then in His Spirit, in us. So, there are two men in, in history, in church history, who've kind of explored this idea. Uh, because if, if you're anything like me, may, maybe you've been a Christian for a little while, or maybe you've going through a season where you you feel like you're praying and it's hitting the ceiling, bouncing right off. You feel like you're talking to no one. You feel like um, God's not answering or God's not listening or He's just distant. Um, these men kind of explored this. He, they kind of sat out to say, okay, how, how does this work? Like, how can we be aware of God's presence? And how do we know when He's speaking and when He's moving? And is this something that we can be in tune to? Because what their testimony is, is that God, especially with this first one, is that God's presence, that He's pursuing us. It's not us pursuing Him. It's very much Him pursuing us. Um, it, it is a, it's kind of a, it's a backwards way to look whenever we talk about it. We say, oh yeah, I've been really pursuing God. Really, she's really pursuing God. Um, the reality is the opposite. He's been pursuing us. And I would venture to say that He is more present and active than you could ever imagine or realize. And so, the first guy I want to introduce you to is a guy named Ignatius of Loyola. He was from Spain, actually. Um, he was a soldier. He was fighting the war. I think he was around 35, mid-30s or so. He, um, he got injured. He went to the hospital. Someone handed him a Bible. He started reading the Gospels. He fell in love with Jesus and right then and there, with the Bible, he gave his life to Jesus. Okay, he was a real—he's kind of known as a real simple man, like a down-to-earth, no nonsense, not one of these um, lofty prayers. Just real simple, just just very few words, very powerful man. But one of the things he's known for is the father of discernment. So, in his later years in ministry, he kind of developed these habits and practices that he would lead some of his people to do. And one of them was called the prayer of, there's two ways to say it. The, the original way is called prayer of examen, which doesn't make sense to any of us, um, or prayer of examen. That makes a little more sense, um, considering what it is. Prayer of examen, we'll call it. Okay. So twice a day, uh, Ignatius would, would, he would, at lunchtime and right before bed, he would sit down and he would go through a series of, of questions, and he would kind of look back at his day, he would be look back with thankfulness, he would try to examine some things that um, that maybe were uplifting to him, and he would examine some things that were discouraging to him, and he would look for the presence of God in the, in the previous four to six hours he's been awake, or whatever, and he would kind of take note of those things, and then he would go on with the rest of his day, and he would do the same thing at night, okay? And so I, I put some of these questions now. These questions are, are more of a 
modern interpretation of, but I think they're helpful. So I, I put three questions up here. What was life-giving? What was draining? Where do, you, where do you see God's presence and activity in or around you? These, these three questions can be really helpful. Because here's what happens. Because I've, I've, I've been in seasons where I've practiced this regularly and then I'm currently not in one, but I'm hoping to get back into one. Um, is what happens is you start going through your day looking for things to note. Because if you, if you think, okay, tonight when I get home, whenever, before I go to bed, I'm going to jot down, okay, yeah, this was pretty exciting. This really drained me. And, and, and I get to think about, okay, why is that bothering me so much? Why did, that, why did that eat me up? Why was that so exciting for me? Okay, God, what are you doing? Like, wh- where did I see your presence, either in my life or in someone else's life? Where did I see you working, either in my life or in someone else's life? And, and all of a sudden, I, I'm, I go throughout my day and I start looking for the things that God's doing. Let me tell you, it works. Like, God is more present and active in your life than you can imagine. So, Ignatius of Loyola, he's an awesome dude. Okay, the pursuing presence of God is a real thing. The next guy I want to introduce you to, his his real name is Nicholas Herman, which I didn't know this. I've been talking about this guy for years. I didn't know his real name. Um, he has a surname or author name or whatever. But Nicholas Herman was a kitchen worker and a sandal fixer, and he walked with a limp. Okay. He was a Carmelite monk, which means he was a, a monk in France in whatever year it says. Brother Lawrence in the 1600s. So Brother Lawrence is kind of the name he's known for, but he was a, he was a Carmelite monk. He was a guy that worked in the kitchen. He washed dishes. He, he cooked for people. He also fixed, he fixed their sandals. Hope your phone, phone didn't break. He, he, you know, he just... He was, he was a guy that you would overlook. And yet nobody remembers anybody in, in, in the 1600s. No, no Carmelite monk is remembered in the 1600s except for this one guy. Because he did something pretty, pretty profound and pretty um, significant. He set out to practice what it would, look, what it would be like to, to experience the presence of God every moment of every day. In fact, he didn't even write about it. He just wrote letters to different people. And so somebody got his letters and compiled the things he did and kind of put it into this little book called Practicing the Presence of God. It's a classic. It's a classic book. I recommend it. But he was, he was set out to, to say, okay, everything that I'm doing, washing dishes, fixing sandals, cleaning up, everything that I'm doing, I want to do it for, Lord, for the Lord. I want to do it for His glory. I want to, I want to, I want to do it as if I'm, he's, He is right here with me. And he is, He's witnessing everything I'm thinking and saying. I, I, want to, I want to experience His presence. Every thought that I have, I want Him to, have, to take captive of it. Um, every action I take, I want Him to be glorified in it. I want to have this constant conversation with Him. So He set out to do this and and then he writes from this perspective of years and years of practicing this. And he says things like this, this first one. The soul that enjoys God in this world is looking for nothing but God himself. In other words, what he's saying is, like, as he's been seeking to experience God's presence, what he's found is, like, that's all he wants to seek. Like everything else in this world seems way less important. Nothing but God Himself. Another one he says, But to truly practice it, the presence of God, the heart must empty out everything else so God alone may possess the heart and do whatever He wants with us. In order to, in order to experience the presence of God, in order to really fully be surrendered to Him and is he's saying you've got to empty out all these other things in your heart that your heart is clamoring for and desiring. You've got to empty those things out and let God fill it so that He can have His way in you. So it's guys like Ignatius of Loyola and Brother Lawrence that, um, 
you know, when I read about them, when I hear their story, when I hear their conviction, I'm, I'm convicted. This, this past week, just as I was thinking about, like, honest question, do I really want to practice His presence every hour of every day? Because I think if I did, um, some things would have to change. Like, some, some habits would have to change. Right? It's a scary thing to think about. Um, so, here's what I want to do. I, I want to give us just a few minutes. Um, about three minutes. Okay? I'm going to give you three minutes um, to sit down. You know, you're already sitting. So, thank you for sitting. Um, to, to sit there and, and you know, you can, you, can, you can go through those questions from, from Ignatius, you know, what was life-giving today? What was draining today? Where did you see God's presence and activity? Or you can sit there and kind of ponder about some of the things that the quotes from Brother Lawrence about seeking Him only, removing things from your heart so that He can possess it. But just spend the next three moments, three minutes, I'm just reflecting on God's presence, and then I'll pray when we're done.